The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. It's Thursday, the 7th of December in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, the CEOs of Wall Street's biggest banks come together to attack plans for new regulations. US senators leave Ukraine funding in limbo, fanning fears over Washington's commitment to support Kyiv. And two months ago, Egypt looked like a country on the brink of financial collapse. But the Israel-Hamas conflict is giving the world new reasons to come to its rescue. We have a special report. Let's start with a roundup, though, of our top stories. The heads of Wall Street's biggest banks have come out swinging against Washington's plans to force them to set aside more cash. Regulators want big US lenders to increase their capital cushions by almost 20%. But speaking to the Senate Banking Committee, CEOs insisted their institutions are safe and argued customers will be forced to foot the bill if tougher rules are enacted. JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon says the move would be counterproductive. The rule would have predictable and harmful outcomes to the economy, markets, business of all sizes and American households in ways the Federal Reserve has not studied, contemplated or shared. Mortgages and small business loans would be more expensive and harder to access, particularly for low to moderate income borrowers as costs for originating and securitizing loans rise. Savings for retirement or college will yield lower returns as costs rise for asset managers, money market funds, and pension funds. Government infrastructure projects will become more expensive as capital requirements for market activities will more than double, translating to higher costs to build hospitals, bridges, and roads. From beverage companies that need to manage aluminum costs to farms that need to protect against environmental risks, if the cost of hedging these risks increases, everything from a can of soda to meat products will be impacted. Diamond sentiment is shared by others who testified, including the CEOs of Citigroup, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. The Fed and other regulators argue that changes would help to avoid turmoil, such as this year's regional banking meltdown. US senators have failed to come to an agreement on a financial aid package for Ukraine. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has the story. It's back to the drawing board, not even making it for a floor vote with the issue border funding for the GOP. President Biden says they have to get something done. This cannot wait. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. Now, the U.S. has shipped more aid to Ukraine, but says it could be the last without more funding. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. President Biden's budget director warned earlier this week that the U.S. will run out of resources to assist Ukraine by the end of the year without another aid package. In the Middle East, Israeli forces say they are encircling the home of top Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar, The state's military is continuing its push into southern Gaza as international condemnation grows. The UN chief, Antonio Guterres, has forced a Security Council debate on the issue. Here's his spokesperson, Stefan Dujaric. 
Uh, given the scale of the loss of human life in Gaza and in Israel in such a short amount of time, the Secretary General has today delivered a letter to the President of the Security Council invoking Article 99 of the Charter of the United Nations. In the letter, which has been shared with you, the Secretary General urges the members of the Security Council to press to avert a humanitarian catastrophe, and he appeals for a humanitarian ceasefire to be declared. It's the first time the UN has used these powers since the 1970s. Israel has responded by saying Guterres had reached a new moral low. The Chinese President Xi Jinping has told European Union leaders that the two sides should step up cooperation and, quote, enhance political mutual trust. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and European Council President Charles Michel are meeting President Xi for the first time in four years. Trade is top of their agendas after the bloc's investigation into subsidies for Chinese electric vehicles inflamed tensions. Jens Eskeland is President of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China. He says he's seen encouraging signs from Beijing ahead of this summit. Beijing has moved a bit in the way that it engages with the rest of the world. We saw just a week ago how six countries here under five EU countries were granted 15 days visa-free travel to China. We saw in August the 24 measures coming out. It's positive and it's something that would help to restore a little bit of the confidence amongst businesses. Jens Eskelin's positive tone comes as Italy announced that it's exiting China's Belt and Road Initiative, dealing a fresh blow to Beijing's ambitions. Foreign Minister Antonio says the pact hasn't produced the desired effect and is no longer a priority. Italy joined the initiative in 2019 and was the only G7 country to do so. China's imports unexpectedly shrank in November from a year ago, raising concerns about economic recovery. Bloomberg's Brian Curtis has more from Hong Kong. Imports declined six-tenths of a percent from a period still hit by COVID last year. Ouch. It was much worse than a forecast for a gain of 3.9%. It suggests that domestic demand is simply not recovering. Exports, meantime, rose 0.5%. That was slightly better than the estimate of no change, but the data will no doubt stoke concerns about China's economic recovery. This is normally a good period seasonally, as exports jump ahead of the holiday season. Season. Not this time. In Hong Kong, Brian Curtis, Bloomberg Radio. Here in the UK, the Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick has quit just hours after the government's new deportation plan was published. The former Sunak ally says the draft law didn't go far enough. Home Secretary James Cleverly defended the bill in Parliament. People will only stop coming here illegally when they know that they cannot stay here and that they will be detained and quickly removed to a safe third country. It is only by breaking the cycle that we will remove the incentive. Cleverly's new immigration bill was aimed at settling a Conservative Party rebellion on the issue. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told his backbenchers last night it was time to, quote, unite or die. And the Bank of England governor has stepped up warnings over hedge funds shorting US Treasury futures, saying they're risking significant market volatility. Andrew Bailey is warning an increase in the so-called basis trade where investors seek to exploit price differences between futures and bonds. There are now larger imbalances in the market for derivatives on US government debt, a core asset in the global financial system. These imbalances involve the leverage positions of asset managers and hedge funds, and they could result in significant market volatility in the event of a shock. 
Bailey's report calculates the net short position in the Treasury futures market has risen to $800 billion from about $650 billion in July. It's a concern for the Bank of England because many of the hedge funds playing the basis trade are active in British gilt markets too. Now in a moment we'll be talking about the upcoming elections in Egypt, but another story that caught my eye this morning is about McDonald's moving into AI. The fast food giant has asked Google to build it a chatbot for its staff to help with training and operation of equipment. It's called Ask Pickles, which may provide some confusion in the kitchen, I think. But McDonald's sees it as being useful for things like ordering supplies, The data may also help to improve efficiency, the fast food giant says. This is, as McDonald's has also been announcing, another move to set up a new cafe, or in its words, a small format beverage-led concept, which will leave it to serve customizable drinks like a churro frappe. Uh, It's a pilot project now, but could it be a chance for the fast food giant to try and rival Starbucks? Uh, The chief executive of McDonald's saying they shouldn't get too excited about Cosmic's small imprint so far, but an interesting development there from the fast food giant. Let's get more now about what the head of Wall Street's biggest banks told the US Senate Banking Committee about planned changes to regulation of their industry. The CEOs pushed back on implementation of the Basel III rules, which would require them to set aside bigger capital cushions. Let's take a listen to some of what they said, starting with Brian Moynihan from Bank of America. We had 10 years to do this, and it's shocking to me that we're sitting up there 10 years and we're talking about what they're going to do for small business, and we have to analyze it today. It has much more an impact than people think. Additional increases are wholly unnecessary. Almost every element of the Basel III endgame proposal would make lending and other financial activities more expensive. As it stands, the proposal would increase the cost of capital and borrowing across the economy. As the cost of debt goes up, it certainly can create volatility in our funding treasuries. It can create volatility in the treasury market. It'll particularly diminish mortgages for lower income people. Ultimately punitive to economic growth and doesn't strike the right cost benefit analysis. It was not thoughtfully done. I'm not sure it was shared fully among all the regulators. Uh, this should be we looked at. It's the first and last voice you heard there was Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan in there as well. Brian Moynihan from Bank of America, Jane Fraser from City, David Solomon from Goldman Sachs and James Gorman from Morgan Stanley. Let's get more details now from our finance reporter, Charlie Wells. Charlie, good morning. What exactly were these bank CEOs laying out their opposition to? Well, they were laying out with some fighting words, weren't they, Stephen? And really, this was about the Basel III endgame. So this is an international overhaul that goes back to the financial crisis of 2008. And really, it's about trying to make sure that banks have enough capital so that they can avoid any liquidity issues if there is some sort of crunch that comes ahead. And let's remember this year that regulators, banks, and Americans got a really stark reminder of how important liquidity is with the meltdowns of mid-sized banks. But it's important to note, you know, how stridently opposed these CEOs are to this set of regulations. And this set of regulations is big. So the proposal was 1,087 pages. It was unveiled in July. And I think the goal for these CEOs is to kill off this regulation. And if they can't kill it off, they at least want to delay it. Was it unusual to see CEOs who are usually rivals be so united on an issue? It was striking. And I mean, look, they are rivals in everything from, you know, league tables to earnings per share. Those issues are meticulously compared. Um, And yes, I think what we have noted over the past few months has been this really intense lobbying campaign against Basel III. Um, You know, they've run 
radio ads. They've run spots in the financial press. They even ran a Super Bowl ad. And I think the goal here, and you know, let's see how easy it is, is to try to convince the American public that these could be damaging for first. These regulations could be damaging for first-time home buyers, for underrepresented minorities, um, for the American economy writ large. But that might be a difficult task because you know, after the financial crisis, big banks did have such a toxic reputation um, across the United States, and I think that's why we're seeing such a you know kind of emotional appeal that we heard yesterday in Congress, but also in this united lobbying front that they've had over the past few months. But did they find a sympathetic audience then from the senators they were speaking to? It was striking, you know. Each year, Congress requires these um, the heads of these big, big banks to come in and testify, and it has tended to be a very you know kind of fiery set of exchanges. And I think at least this time, certainly on the Republican side, um, and even from some Democrats, there was a slightly kind of warmer, or if at least you know less fiery tone between um, you know the politicians on one side and the bankers on the other. Um, but look, I mean, it, it kind of did divide down party lines with Republicans a little bit um, more sympathetic. Um, people like Sherrod Brown, the Senate Banking Committee chairman, um, on very much the other side, talking about how these rules, there's nothing in these rules that would stop these large banks from making loans to working families and small businesses. And that's a line that a lot of these banks have tried to push. Democrats tried to push back on that. Charlie, briefly, the hearing touched on other issues too, including the subject of cryptocurrencies. This was one of the most notable moments. And Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, who has made, you know, a name for herself, blasting banks, blasting bankruptcy policy. She and Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan were actually on the same page about cryptocurrency, um, especially in regards to rules over money laundering. Um, You know, Elizabeth Warren even got Jamie Dimon effectively to say that he would shut down the crypto industry if he had a government role. So that was a rare moment of accord between those two sides. Charlie Wells, our finance reporter, thank you very much. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to Egypt next, where voters go to the polls on Sunday for a three-day election that President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi is almost certain to win as the country wrestles with its worst economic crisis in years. Joining us now for more is our Cairo-based economy reporter, Mirat Magdi. Mirat, good morning to you. What are the issues at the forefront of voters' minds? So, almost all Egyptians are now struggling to cope with the high cost of living. You know, the country has devalued its currency three times since early last year. Annual inflation now is over 35%, which is a record. A kilo, a pack of one kilo sugar, for example, has doubled this year. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I visited Sohad in Upper Egypt, far south of Cairo, where about 60% of people are living under the poverty line. And, you know, people there told me they can't now afford what they call the poor man food, such as rice and pasta, sugar, 
but almost everyone has been affected across the country. In Cairo and Alexandria, for example, the biggest two cities, you can see the middle class struggling to cope with the prices of some imported goods, not only luxury stuff, but also some other important items. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how this happened. How did Egypt's economy get into this shape? That's a good question. The authority has been relying on volatile hot money for years. And, you know, Egypt was once a darling for portfolio investors who bought its treasury bills and bonds because it offers one of the world's highest return and kept the pound stable. But due to the combination of first COVID pandemic and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, investors pulled more than $20 billion from the Egyptian market. It's a big money. And the world also sent import bills touring. And, you know, Egypt is one of the world's biggest wheat buyers. And a lot of that came from Ukraine and Russia. And at the same time, authorities have been spending billions of dollars on infrastructure and mega projects. Another important factor is that each policy of supporting the bond, that they, they was keen to keep the bond stable to attract, like I mentioned, portfolio investors. And that happened even when the country was experiencing a shortage in foreign currency. How has the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza changed things for Egypt? The war has revived Egypt's dramatic role in the region. It reminded the West that Egypt is too big to fail. It's the only gateway for aid to reach Gaza, and it's a key player in hostage talks that allowed a truce after six weeks of fighting. Now, many people expect the international community would be more willing to support Egypt financially. And it's not only about how the world view Egypt's role in the conflict, but also about how many Egyptians appreciate Sisi's efforts to get aid into Gaza and his refusal to accept mass relocation of Palestinians into Egypt. You know, this was a plan floated earlier, and it would raise the risk Palestinians would never be allowed back to their homeland, mm. and it would also bring Hamas into Egypt plan. You can easily feel how Sisi popularity increased across multiple regions in the country after the war. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa device. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.